0: Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: Always think about the people on your team, how you can help them. Early on as an investor, I always thought about myself. How could I get the lowest interest rate, cheapest attorney, the contractor that was the cheapest? Now I like to think in terms of relationships. How can I help other people? And in turn, that helps me.
2: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast.
0: Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every
2: day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm joined today by John Warren. John is based in Chicago, Illinois. He's president at Forte Properties Incorporated, a top-performing real estate brokerage that specializes in selling residential one-to-four family investment properties. They also acquire valued multifamily buildings and have a commercial multifamily portfolio of 154 units. John, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? That
1: was a really good intro. My day-to-day is mostly focused around keeping the operations going for 154 units and continue to do acquisitions. And then on the brokerage side, I run the real estate team. So I get to interact with a lot of really cool people, helping them buy and sell real estate, lease real estate, answer questions about being a housing provider. So I have a lot going on. It's a full life. I love every second of it.
2: Nice. So the first thing... I want to ask, John, I have interviewed a few people for this podcast who poo-poo the Chicago market for a variety of reasons, primarily with commercial multifamily, which I imagine your 154 doors are in greater Chicago, right?
1: Yes, we're mostly in the near suburbs, but a few of the buildings are in Chicago proper. But Everything is within, say, a 30 to 40 minute drive to the loop. So very much in Chicago
0: area.
2: Okay. I've interviewed some people on this podcast who avoid Chicago for a handful of reasons. One of them being the way that possibly just the city of Chicago, but possibly larger counties are handling property taxes. And then there's other more tenant friendly legislation there that you wouldn't expect from the Midwest. But Chicago being the size of city that it is, is fairly blue to my understanding. Can you speak to some of those things? I hear that there are some hurdles you have to jump investing in Chicago.
1: I agree with the property taxes being something to really understand. I wouldn't call it a hurdle. I've always found the taxes to be fairly transparent. When you look at the county tax portal website, you can look up what your assessed value is before you purchase the building. And if you're buying for double the assessed value, you should anticipate that they will chase that in the near future. So we can always get a pretty good dial on where our taxes will be. So that's one of the things that I talk about a lot with clients too is Understanding the tax bill that's going to be your number one expense in Chicago most of the time would be your real estate taxes. So It's an important one to understand, but I don't necessarily find it to be a barrier here. I think that if you buy a building with the correct taxation in mind and the numbers work, you should feel comfortable moving forward with it. When you think about landlord-friendly versus tenant-friendly legislation, Chicago definitely slants towards tenants, which is another thing to be aware of. But again, I don't think it's a deal breaker. Yet anyway, any of the more onerous things like rent control in place. So it's still a place where you can do business. If you do have to go down the eviction route, it can be frustrating. The process is definitely slower than it would be in some of the more landlord-friendly states. But at the same time, the amount of opportunities that are here, to me, are a reason to do business in Chicago. There's quite a few small to mid midsize multifamily buildings. So if you're looking to buy, there's a lot of opportunity here versus maybe a smaller market where there would be much less deal flow.
2: We're recording in the beginning of February, 2023. I'm a department owner operator, operate a similar size portfolio to you here in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I have some curiosity, both Midwestern markets, Chicagoland area, of course, significantly larger. But what are you seeing right now in that one-to-four family space when it comes to transacting for your investor clients? It's been
1: a tough season here for about six months to a year with low inventory, where a lot of folks would really like to buy, especially our house tech clients would like to buy a a two-to-four-in building and there's just not a whole lot for sale. And obviously pricing being a little higher after the last few years run up has been tough and also the higher interest rates. But we're still finding things for people to buy. Most people are having to get a little bit more creative, maybe than they did, say, five years ago. So we're seeing people look at things differently through a different lens. Maybe people are looking at doing short-term rental, or maybe they're looking at it as a lifestyle adjustment, where it's not so much the building will cash flow for everybody, but it will help reduce their cost of living. There's different ways people are, are getting deals done. But it has been a challenging six months, I'd say, with the interest rates going up we're hopeful this is going to be a really good year for a lot of our clients that are looking to acquire. It's honestly been a really good a couple of years though, for people who did buy real estate. A lot of people have sold and done really, really well. So I think that goes to show that there's two sides of the coin. I think a lot of newer investors forget that they probably will eventually sell and it's nice when prices go up. So I've seen both sides of it over the past year.
2: I'm a residential agent as well. And I would say I've transacted a lot, probably not as much as your team, but I've transacted a lot on that two to four family space personally and representing clients and working with other agents, helping them with their clients. And I would say specific to property values and not necessarily inventory that there was steady growth heading into the pandemic and then property values just skyrocketed. There was a lot of capital looking to get deployed for yield. And the popularity of house hacking, I don't think is going to go anywhere ever. Coming out of the pandemic with all of the talk about inflation and interest rates here in Cincinnati, I have my finger fairly well to the pulse. Property values have not receded at all in that asset class, two to four families. I would say it's likely a part of that low inventory that you're mentioning, but demand has been incredibly high. So with interest rates doubling for this product in the course of under 12 months, property values didn't go anywhere and demand for the inventory available remained steady here, keeping property values buffered up. Is that your experience in Chicago right now?
1: You could have just talked about Chicago and and substituted Chicago for Cincinnati, but yes, prices just exploded after the pandemic and there was a huge run-up in pricing from 2021 to 2022. And kind of like you referenced, when we look at a graph this year with our sellers, we say, hey, if prices aren't going up 12%, but they're maybe more flat or up 1% or 2%. That's still a huge win, especially when you look at how high they went so quickly in two years. But I agree. There's very low inventory, so we don't really see prices going down at all in the near future, even with the increased interest rates. There's just too much demand and not enough supply.
2: Oh, yeah. and better to be lucky than good. I've refinanced all of my two to four families in September and October of 2021. So I'm more than happy to ride out this wave and see that my property values are not decreasing with all of the activity in the market. John, this is going to end up being a more pointed conversation for a couple of Midwestern residential agents who are operating a commercial multifamily portfolio. I know that our listeners will gain some value from this, whether or not they're invested in markets like ours with assets like ours. But I want to ask you, you said you're heavily involved in the day-to-day operations of your 150 plus unit portfolio.
1: Yeah, I'm very involved. So all my friends here in Chicago always call me a control freak. But I can never 100% let go, which is why we chose the vertical integration route versus using a third-party manager. I wouldn't want to drive any third-party management companies insane. So I'm still very involved in the day-to-day operation. Got a great team. We've got a property manager, an accountant, a couple of maintenance guys. We have a pretty good-sized operation now going. But I'm still very involved, especially at in the level, say, CapEx, major unit turn decisions, things like that. I still kind of want to know what's going on at this point. So yes, very involved.
2: Let's talk shop a bit here, John. As of today, my management portfolio, it's growing, but it's 165 units. And some of that is third party. You talk about vertical integration. When my acquisitions didn't scale as fast as I wanted my operations to scale, I decided to take on third-party clients. You said you have a property manager, an accountant a couple of maintenance guys. Is that your full team?
1: Yeah. If you want to know the full team, we have a property manager and accountants, one assistant who switches back and forth between the realtor business and the management side as needed. And then on the ground, we have three guys that are working for us full-time the fourth guy that sort of came along for the party. He was let go by somebody else and needed some work. He's related to one of our guys. And then we have quite a few People that I consider are people that work with us regularly. They're maybe your 1099 guys that work for whoever they want, but we consider them part of the team. So the maintenance and construction team is huge. Those guys are the lifeline of your business. I'm sure you know that. but Absolutely. The people that are getting stuff done on a day-to-day basis, that's it. You can't speak too highly of those guys. They're the ones that are hands and feet of the business, and they're providing the customer service for the most part to the residents when things break or go wrong.
2: Asking much more so for myself here, hoping our listeners are following along, thinking about vertically integrated active operations here. Operating a similar size portfolio to yours, I have avoided the hiring a quote-unquote property manager to be an employee of my management company. I've avoided that because of what I perceive to be the complex Layers of responsibility involved in being a property manager. I would much rather have the complexities fall on me and focus on hiring people for more of the day to day work. I have people who help me with showings and move ins and move outs and with simpler apartment turns. They're the ones who are building out the punch list where I get involved in the more significant renovations and building out which renovations will yield an ROI and which will not so that we're not spending our money or my client's money needlessly on things that will not increase revenue. Tell me what your project manager employee does.
1: It's interesting that you said property manager and project manager. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of overlap or maybe confusion about what a property manager is. So maybe what I'll do instead of trying to explain is I'll just define what my property manager is. He is a virtual employee, so he is not on the ground, and he fields all of our maintenance calls, and he also takes care of a lot of our releasing. So when we have uh, upcoming lease renewals, he's handling the renewals side of it. You're very well aware. sounds like we actually have a lot of similarities in that the complexities of CapEx, renovations, business plan execution, I guess, if you're the operator, that's really more where I still want to take responsibility. I think it's really hard... For somebody that is a manager that doesn't understand what the business plan is to make these big decisions, I even would say impossible for that person without having understanding of the budget and how things are supposed to operate. So I'm still the one that's making most of the decisions on these unit terms, but they're not regular unit terms. They're really the first time we've touched these buildings and many of them have not been touched in 20 years in any meaningful way in a unit term. So we're doing pretty substantial renovations as part of the value end plan. So I actually think we have a similar level of involvement from what I'm hearing. Where I'm not really involved would be more your routine maintenance, like my toilet's clogged, my sink faucet's broken. All the maintenance guys that we use are very competent. They can pretty much handle that on their own. And it's just a text message is all it really is for my manager. He's very, very competent. and kind of knows when I'm needed versus when he can just get one of the guys to handle the issue. That is a tough thing. It's interesting that you're doing more third party. For me, that's been the challenge of third party is that you have to think through a different lens that I'm not really that ready to think through. Because I'm really more focused on executing our business plan versus
0: manage profitably for somebody else. We'll get back to the show. with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets. will be live and in person speaking at the event, also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to mfincon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit mfincon.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's mfincon.com.
2: I have interviewed a few people on this podcast a few who have used third-party property management to scale their operations and improve on the execution of their own business plans for their own portfolio. I've aired 160, 170, maybe more than that episodes in just over a year. And I can think of two other people I've interviewed off the top who've gone into third-party management for the sake of being a better investor. So it's not very common. It's complex. It's not high margin like some other service provider or vendor positions you can put yourself in as you scale. So I get where you're coming from there for sure. And when you talk about your property manager being virtual, that resonates with me a lot as well. One of the first things that I did was put a virtual assistant on payroll to basically be on the phones 40 to 50 hours a week. All of the tenant inquiries, all of the prospective tenant inquiries the zillowandapartments.com leads that come in. It's amazing. I've had to show apartments within my portfolio a lot recently while I'm going through an employee transition. And some of the people who I'm showing apartments to thought that my tenant relations VA was an algorithm, was just automated responses because of how quickly she was getting to things. But it's so invaluable to have that resource, that asset, someone who's just on the phones all the time, communicating with everyone. Hey, your rent is now late. When are you planning to pay? Don't be surprised when you see the notice on your door. Hey, your lease is up in a couple of months. What are your plans? Are you ready to sign a new one-year lease? Those kinds of conversations, just having someone to go through those cycles is incredibly helpful when you are our size. Another similarity I'm hearing between the two of us is that with portfolios our size, there's a level of decision-making that we're not ready to delegate yet. And also a level of activity that's still involved as the portfolio scales. I am very much looking forward to being at 250 and then 400 doors when I'm able to delegate a lot more of the in-person activity of operations and property management. One thing I'll say, last homey Midwestern owner-operator question here before we move on with the conversation, given our somewhat older apartment inventory, I've been told that you need a full-time maintenance person on staff for every 100 doors that you have. That experience is not panning out for me. Really, with the 165 doors that I'm managing right now, I can't keep one maintenance person busy full-time. Now, that being said, I also buy more significantly distressed assets that require a lot more renovation up front. So, a lot of my stuff, my fixtures and things are newer. But that full time maintenance person per 100 doors, is that your experience in Chicago?
1: So, it's funny that you ask about that because that was a transition I made last year. We didn't have enough maintenance help. And now we've probably gone the other direction. We have too much maintenance help, but at the same time, we're taking a lot of the general contracting in house. So, I really am in the process of right now of looking at the team we have and saying who here is really part of our general contracting or unit term team, and who here is a maintenance person. And what is maintenance, kind of like you're referencing? Is maintenance rotting the sewer main, which is something that's happening right now while this podcast is being recorded in one of our buildings? Or is it cleaning the hallways and changing light bulbs? There's like a vast array of things that could be done by a maintenance person. So, I wish that I had all the answers. I could deliver to you in this podcast but I feel like I'm still figuring this stuff out and we are growing fast and trying to prepare ourselves for that three to four hundred unit spot that you just talked about so I almost feel like I'd rather when talent comes up I'd rather acquire the talent than be always behind the eight ball that was the worst answer to your question I could have put together I don't know
2: (laughs) I get why you're saying that's a bad answer but I also resonate with it completely Going through the traction process, Traction, the book by Gino Wickman, I realized that one of my core values professionally, but also in life in general is adaptability. And I very much feel the need to be nimble with the portfolio size that you and I have. Of all of the people, W2 and 1099, who work for me presently in maintenance, in rehab, apartment turns, HVAC, et cetera. It feels like firm labels and rigid job descriptions are just more harm than good. I have some people, each of them has some skills, and really the most important thing I can do is remain adaptable, nimble as issues come up, figure out who of my people is the best to address it and just deploy them, whether they are my full-time maintenance person or whether they are one of my rehabbers who has worked for me for over a year, who I trust to be in an occupied space, even if they're a 1099. John, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. Awesome. What is the best ever book you recently read? I recently read Traction,
1: which you referenced earlier. And I found that that book has been changing the way that I run my business.
2: That's a book that I need to go back to every 18 months. For sure and pick out the things that i'm finally ready to deploy in my business what is your best ever way to give back
1: best ever way to give back for me is to run a meetup we actually run a meetup me and a friend of mine who's a local property manager here in the berlin area and we are joining up with a larger organization called the mboa in chicago where we can get better informed help investors connect with the movers and shakers in the area
2: nice Shout out to local meetups for sure. John, I want to ask this question twofold, both as a broker and as a commercial real estate investor, what are the biggest mistakes that you've made and the best ever lessons that resulted from those mistakes?
1: As an investor, that's a fairly easy one to answer. You referenced earlier in the show, old building stock, and I have left a lot of plumbing in place that I deeply regret four years later. One particular building that was my first gut renovation. I had the perfect plumber and I should have hired him to do the job, it would cost about $30,000 for 19 units to have everything be brand new. And oh, instead wow. I decided to keep all the old stuff in there and we've had to pay the price and learn that lesson over and over and over and over again. So lesson learned as an investor, when you have the wall open, change the plumbing, the electrical, the HVAC, take that opportunity. It's an opportunity cost. So that was a big lesson for me.
2: Oh yeah. We're in markets that still have lead, supply lines, cast iron drain lines, not to mention knob and two wiring and aluminum wiring. So I totally get that. If you're opening the wall up already, for sure. And then as a broker, biggest mistake and best ever lesson resulting from it?
1: Early on as a broker, I didn't know who my ideal client was. So I wasted a lot of time doing things on solo leads. And like many brokers, I listened to whoever was advertising to me online. As I became more experienced and figured out how to work in a geographical area, I was more successful. And I was able to find who my ideal clients are, people, my tribe. So somebody in here is listening, is a newer broker. I would recommend them think through who they actually want to work with. Otherwise you kind of dispel all your energy trying to help everybody and you end up helping your
2: money on that note john what is your best ever advice for me my best ever
1: advice is to always think about the people on your team how you can help them early on as an investor i always thought about myself how could i get the lowest interest rate cheapest attorney the contractor that was the cheapest now i like to think in terms of relationships how can i help other people and in turn that helps me because I get to work with the same awesome group of people, whether that's a contractor, an attorney, a lender. It helps me build my team, always looking out for the other people on my team. So I would recommend somebody always think about others and how you can help them, not just about yourself as you
2: build. That's awesome. Last question, where can people get in touch with you?
1: Easiest place to get in touch with me is just by email, jwarrenbroker at gmail.com or you can give out my cell phone number. I'm pretty easy going. If you text me at 2 a.m., I'm ignoring you just like I am the tenant that's texting me, so it's all good. But yeah, I'm always pretty easy to get in touch.
2: Great, and those links are in the show notes. John, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this conversation between a couple of residential agent, apartment owner operators in the Midwest, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day.